Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesson. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, I was king hit by a giant insect. Forget about wearing masks. I'm, I'm thinking about wearing a helmet if it wasn't so hot. <laughs> what kind of insect are we talking here? Well, I'll tell you. Do you know what a carpenter bumblebee looks like? I do, in fact. They are, right? They're fuzzy, black, giant bumblebees. They're the size of my thumb, and they fly about as delicately and precisely as a Chinook helicopter. You know, (laughs) it's just, it's not a good look. And this thing slammed into my forehead, and I thought, well, wait a minute here, and... When I looked at the size of the thing, I thought, you know, a hummingbird would have <laughs> some issues, you know. That is right. a big-ass bumblebee. Yeah, no kidding. I was about eight or nine years old, and I was on a class trip to um, some kind of museum of natural history that would have been located in either, let's see, when I was eight o'clock, eight o'clock, when I was eight years old, I lived in Oklahoma, so it probably would have been one of the Great Plains museums in Oklahoma, and I was sitting on a bench eating my lunch, and I felt a tickle on my forehead, and I reached back and rubbed my finger across the back of one of those things. And I will never forget the kind of, the feel of that hair uh, through my finger, how, how unusual it was. Didn't get stung, uh, just touched it. And it was it was alarming, to say the least. Yeah, you know, just... The world of insects, it's like my entomologist friend in Australia says, you know, we just have no idea. You know, the idea that that this, it's all about humans is just <laughs> so not true. It's, it's all hilarious. about insects, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, who are we kidding? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot lately because of having this home and going out with a baby now it puts a whole different spin on going to walmart or the gas station or you know there's all this preparation that i have to do i have to make sure that i have a bottle and diapers and you know everything's in the diaper bag and i have my carrier and then when i get to the place that i'm going to i have to take him out and just that process of slowing down in running simple errands has started making me think about how human beings lived even, you know, 150 to 200 years ago, how everything was kind of slow. You didn't have cars that could easily go 35 or 40 miles an hour by gently pressing your foot on a gas pedal. So you had to make plans with everything that you did. And um, because of that, I've also just been thinking about the idea of the home and the fact that when you're out, it's fun. I went to an art walk on Friday, saw a bunch of people, mingled, uh, showed off my baby. And then when I went home, I felt very secure. And I thought to myself, this is so interesting because number one, there are people that don't have homes, but the home is this strange insulation from the outside world. We have air conditioning and I can go to Walmart and buy flypaper. So even if I have intruders, I can catch them (laughs) and keep them from messing with me. But all of this trying to keep the world out. You know, we've been having some really unusually heavy rainfall for July in Oklahoma. So the grass is still green. That's nice. But uh, the flies and mosquitoes are not nice, right? Um, 
so I don't live in a completely human world right now. I live in the mosquitoes world. I'm just a part of it, and I'm fighting for my life. Jeez, you're going to have to get that salt gun out again. But I love yeah. the evolutionary shift that you've gone into with the whole fatherhood thing and your expedition planning to go out to the drugstore or the supermarket. Because what's hilarious is that, you know, like people who work the night shift, it take if they go off the night shift, it takes them a couple of years to adjust. And sometimes they never do. They're just like permanently night shift people. Well, I know... Mm-hmm recovering parents that's what i call them recovering (laughs) parents and they're still in expedition planning mode even if the kids are like 18 or or 30 you know it's never going to end ever again you're always going to be thinking do we have water do i have my backpack do i have this do i have that (laughs) yeah i become responsible i know i used to only have to think about that kind of thing if we were going on a hike now it's if I want to take a walk down to the park and sit under a tree for a little while. Well, do I have, uh, you know, do I have my, my, my bug spray and my notebook and my, and again, the diapers, the bottle, the blankets, the spit rag, all this kind of stuff. The amount that this kid spits up is just, it's phenomenal. The, the bodily fluid um, up close and personal interaction with it. Uh, has completely desensitized me. I'm assuming that this also happens to a certain extent at the other end of life, right? When you start to be able to lose your ability to, you know, control your bladder and, you know, your bowels and things like that. I I suppose that on both ends of this life, there is a a great uh, familiarity with... um, with nasty stuff, <laughs> which is bodily yeah, fluids. Yeah, you know? I mean, unfortunately, I, I think that the, the the starting off point were shielded memory wise from some of that. Although, as Freud, you know, kept telling us, it it comes back in many different ways. Mm. Uh, but I think for sure the the the, the awkwardness and, and the poignancy and the real painfulness is is at the end of life. You know, it's a very different. Uh, situation when people lose control there's the shame and embarrassment although i think that we're we're, we will maybe as more and more people as the demographic you know shifts uh we we may you know get a little bit less squeamish we're we're a pretty Mm -hmm. squeamish lot in america about any kind of bodily fluids and uh i mean just think about the uh, the word poop (laughs) <laughs> I, I don't remember that being the chosen phrase uh, when I was growing up, but it certainly wasn't something that, you know, that was used by everyone. And uh, I saw this chick in the park the other day, and, and she had a T-shirt on that said, I poop today. And I thought, oh, well, good for you. <laughs> you <know. laughs> um, and there's a children's book called Every, Everybody Poops. And it's like, yes. okay, we, we, right. we, we get it. Um, did we really need to be reminded about all of this? And this may tie into our discussion, uh, sort of ongoing discussion of childhood for this episode. But we, we've had this, I mean, it's not even puritanical. That's kind of the American attitude about sex, right? Per, yeah. Puritanical or very permissive, one, one extreme or the other. But the bodily fluids, those other... Uh, pooping, peeing, menstruation, phlegm, phlegm, or, Ooh, you know, God. snot, you know, those kinds of things. Ugh, you know, That's everyone goes, 
Every time I hear of a guy, and it's always a guy, I've never encountered a woman who does this, but a guy who will hawk a loogie, right? Yeah. Um, it's just the most revolting <laughs> sound that I've ever heard. And, you know, I've um, heard good things about the Samuel Delaney novel in the Valley of the Nest of Spiders, <clears throat> which is one of his late works. It's it's relatively recent. It's a 600-page uh, pornographic science fiction novel uh, but Delaney puts a lot of his personal fetishes into the book. And when I heard that uh, Snot was involved heavily yeah, for 600 pages, I, I thought, you know, there are other ways that I can spend my time. I think I'll, I think I'll just listen to it. I, I think I'll pass uh, on that one. But, uh, well, yeah, you know, and it just, it you, you sort of wonder, are we ever going to get out of elementary school you know mm -hmm. it just it i mean there's certainly some uh you know there's some fun in bodiness and uh juvenility i mean some of, of, of the great literature is, is is about these bodily functions I mean, you know gulliver's travels there's a lot to do about you know the whole deal and and rabelais and you know many other i mean it's it's not that we don't need to sort of you know, have that uh, debrief about being human and, and made of, you know, uh, organic materials. But on the other hand, it seems like the artists of the past have done that much better, you know? Mm -hmm. we're, we're just kind of stuck on really the, you know, the elementary school restroom level, you know? Mm -hmm. Counterpoint, I do find a lot of that stuff really funny. So take from that. What so do you I. So do I. I mean, who doesn't? I mean, right. I. You know, it's like somebody falling on their face. You know, I mean, it's. You know, you, you just naturally kind of smirk or laugh, even. You know, mm -hmm. uh, no. I mean, I don't think that there's anything that that's changed about human nature that way, both in in a good sense and in a kind of really, uh, you know, dubious sort of, not very well misanthropic sense. I mean, I, I don't think we've changed at all that way. It's like. No. No. Yeah. Uh, so shifting gears a little bit, I've been getting back into uh, writing. I've had an opportunity come across my desk recently that I really hope goes through, but it'll require me to do a lot of ghost writing. Um, so I've been trying to get back into the creative mode. I've been thinking about a lot of different things, but I haven't necessarily been, <clears throat> excuse me, um, writing as much as I would like to. So uh, Rios and I began to watch Breaking Bad again. I watched it when it aired 10 years ago, but have you watched this show? You know, I came to it late and I, I ended up uh, starting off. I did something that I've never done with a show that, or certainly that I can recall. I, I really watched it from a research point of view and I ended up seeing, to start with, uh, some really uh, of, of the more famous episodes, like four or five of them, you know, famous for different reasons, whether for, ex you know, extreme violence or a key moment in the development of the overall plot line or whatever, and certainly the ending. And I, I regret doing that. I, I kind of, I think I should have just gone right from the start. I did get involved with Better Call Saul, which I, I, I really did like at first. I don't know why I went off that. Um, I did too, yeah. I stopped watching after one season. I think I just didn't have any sense of where it was going was my problem. Uh, Breaking Bad was always good at giving you that little hook or teaser at the end of pretty much every episode or every scene. I think the whole show is kind of a master class in pulp crime writing. 
think that's what we mm-hmm. should all kind of aspire to. But Better Call Saul didn't really do that all that much for me. Although I think that the actor, uh, Bob Odenkirk, who plays Saul, I think he's fantastic. I think he's great. Um, but yeah, I'm probably going to attempt to go through it after we finish uh, Breaking Bad. Because uh, watching a show with your significant other, especially after you've been married for, <clears throat> Rios and I are going on, I think, uh, 16 years now of being married just watching a That's show amazing. is a great wholesome activity <laughs> you know what i mean it's just you know you just sit there and then you talk about it you know you go to we went to target today and we we're talking about breaking bad but um getting back into the whole writing thing has been fantastic because the universe has started talking to me again uh i only really get what you could cl- call close to depressed it's not depression because i've before and this is not it but i only get close to depression when i feel like i'm not being spoken to anymore but yeah some really interesting things have happened recently where i woke up yesterday thinking about death pretty intensely uh not in a morbid way though i don't know if you've ever had this experience where you just kind of walk around in a daze because you're you're contemplating the fact that there's something that's completely outside of your experience that's going to happen to you And you're not afraid of the pain or thinking about how sad everybody's going to be that you're gone, which are these kind of, I think, normal, typical death fantasies. But you're just kind of overwhelmed with the impossibility of the whole thing, right? How does one actually die? And uh, I turned on my podcast app, and uh, one of the first podcasts that popped up was, it was called uh, The Spiritual Politics of the Dead, uh, a podcast by a guy, Connor Habib, who I like a lot. Um, and I was like, oh, that's interesting that that's, you know, sort of the first thing that would pop up. And then it has nothing to do with death, but I'll I'll tie it in here in just a second. But I was walking to pick up some Mexican food and I was rounding a corner and a car, uh, kind of got close, didn't almost clip me, but it was close enough for me to kind of jump back a bit. And there was a man in the passenger seat of the car in a full-size dog costume, almost like a mascot, uh, <laughs> and he was hanging out of the window, waving at me. Um, what kind of dog? Have... What breed of dog, man? It was that kind of cartoon mutt that right. uh, kind of, kind of uh, like a bargain basement McGruff the crime dog would be what I would call. Nice, it. I got him. I got him. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, but yeah. So I did. I, I was so kind of stunned by this that I just waved back. I. I had nothing that, <laughs> nothing funny or, or, or clever, clever to do. But that was I, I all just, that was required. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But I was thinking about that, and uh, it doesn't relate necessarily to death. But it does always strike me that when I start to consider these bigger questions and allow myself to become overwhelmed by them and baffled by them, and then I combine that with a creative process that I'm back on. Um, I call it the universe talking. Right. Which I haven't had any, you know, uh, people in dog costumes waving at me or anything in a weirdness uh, equivalent to that happen over the past, you know, several months or so. So it it feels good back back in the saddle or in the doghouse or whatever metaphor you want to use there. Well, you know, everything connects, as we say, Uh, because I've been for whatever reason. uh, I mean, I, I could have done this, you know, months ago, but I. I've been. I, I reread the Tibetan Book of the Dead, 
you know, mm -hmm. the Bardo Thottle, you know, it's, it's really, and I, I've got these fragments uh, from it just kind of as strips on my wall just to look mm -hmm. at. And I'm looking at this line, the blue monkey headed goddess of inquisitiveness, mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of, you know, it's not sort of a guy in a dog suit, but it's, it's, it's suspiciously in the same register. And the whole thing is, of course, you know, a kind of self-help book for dying or for dealing mm -hmm. with the dead. And it's a reminder about all of these amazing creatures and beings and demons. And, and yet, as the, 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 the text is it pains to keep reminding uh, the readers that, that uh, these are all embodiments of thine own intellect. You know, the blood-drinking deities, be not afraid of them. The guy in the dog suit, be not afraid. What, you know, wave back. They're just the embodiment of thine own intellect, thine own wow. mind. And I think I like that's that. like, you know... Something we should all bear. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I was thinking about it and I thought, hmm, maybe, you know, Anubis from the Egyptian, you know, death, cosmology, Book of the Dead, what, what have you. But I think that that's stretching it a bit too much. I think that when the universe talks, you know, you have to wonder what that language would look like. And it's never quite exact, right? Magic is this way very often, too. You know, um, what's the story? There's a great story on the Weird Studies podcast, which if you're listening to this and you've never heard that podcast, it would be uh, right up your alley. So definitely check that out. Uh, there's a story that the guy tells about getting, uh, asking for a, I guess, a large sum of money. And I'm, I'm totally butchering the story, but it's, he ends up getting some kind of, uh, some kind of royalty check or something from a from a company money back or something and it's from the large the large sum incorporated or something like that but it's only a check for like two or three dollars or something like that um so the universe tends to have both a sense of humor and kind of this amelia bedelia like misunderstanding of what it is that you're asking for so when i see a man in a dog costume uh after i've been pondering death all day uh, it might just be an absurd joke, right? Like, hey man, relax. Here's a here's a guy in a dog costume who's gonna almost run you down with his, uh, you know, his old Chevy. So there's that. Well, you know, and and I think it is true that that we need to, <laughs> to at least consider that the universe does have a sense of humor. One of the other quotations I got stuck to my wall is from. Uh, the wonderful entomologist J.B.S. Haldeen, who, <laughs> who is, uh, just made an observation that, quote, God has an inordinate fondness for beetles, which, you know, I mean, that's entomologist humor, isn't it? But it's absolutely true. I mean, this guy is one of the great beetle experts of all. And the beetle scene on this planet is absolutely bloody unbelievable i mean mm -hmm. this is the beetle capital of at least uh the galaxy i suggest um <laughs> so yeah look you know it, it anything goes you just got to stay loose and 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 i think waving 
at uh, you know these figures, whether they're blood drinking deities or people in mascot outfits, I think waving is a good initial strategy. You know, it uh, it, it may take them by surprise. It's it doesn't give your position away. It it still we you know can promote self defense. Uh, it, it's just a good kind of. Uh, it's actually a very good rhetorical strategy because no one's quite sure what it means, right? You know? Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, on that note, uh, Chris, what would you like to talk about here in this uh, part one of our episode? Okay, well, we've got a lot going on. We were uh, involved with the the subject of, of childhood, and we're thinking of childhood as a construction and as an actual time period within the Western frame, and particularly within the American psyche, the relationship to the kind of cultural uh, disorder that we identified as nostalgia. We may end up coming back to that on multiple levels. Nostalgia, I think, has a lot of resonance for people because it is both very personal and also something that's societal and cultural. We, we, can, mm-hmm. we know what nostalgic music sounds like no matter what age we are and what time period. So there's a lot going on there. Uh, we did want to move that whole subject forward into the larger frame, which may be kind of a, a next series about um, conflicts, essential structural conflicts in uh, American society, where we say one thing and we mean another. In anthropology mm-hmm. terms, it's the official cultural practices versus the unofficial but very real, the connotative versus denotative aspects. Um, and so children and childhood is a good place to start. Just to backtrack a little bit for people who, who uh, didn't catch that episode or have yet to catch it, um, we looked at, first of all, the question of whether or not uh, childhood says anything about the notion of adulthood, which is our first major structural conflict, because we said, well, in fact, it, it kind of doesn't. It doesn't say as, as much as it should in, in the sense that childhood bleeds into adulthood in some very weird ways that aren't really desirable. Uh, over-sexualized young girls, for instance, was one example we looked at there. Um, over-commercialized kids, kids who are already consumers, you know, at younger and younger ages. Um, and then also the... Uh, the sense of adulthood kind of bleeding back into childhood. And this may be uh, uh, the connection point with some of our earlier themes about initiation rights and what we could learn from other cultures, what certain ethnic and racial groups within, say, American society uh, try to preserve. I think we've got some examples coming up on that front. Um, but we did sort of start off thinking of the the opposition and or hopeful evolution of childhood through to adulthood was was very suspicious in america uh mm-hmm. and and somewhat tragic that it it seems to uh on the one hand be a, a loss of wonder and enchantment and a movement towards societal morality on the other hand, it seems to move very, very quickly into crass commercialism and even some of the wonderful things that excite us as children 
as adults, we reflect back on them and think, oh, wait a minute, those were like Star Wars toys or, you know, there was always some money aspect to it, some commercial footprint. So those are some issues regarding the childhood adulthood uh, segment that we've we've kind of gotten through. We did uh, look at. Uh, a funny story about Shirley Temple and a Graham Greene review that uh, David took issue with, which I thought was really enjoyable. Um, mm-hmm. But we came around to sort of the end point of looking at uh, the the evolution from childhood to adulthood, at least in an American context, um, as having a lot to do with addiction. Uh, we mean really addiction to consumerism, but addiction to a kind of societal uh, framework that uh, really limits uh, individual freedom. And it, it may be the, the, the causal factor and also the result of this kind of culture-wide nostalgia, which we said is, is, is the larger syndrome or disorder. So we've got some really kind of, uh, we've got, a kind of mental illness or or an epidemic or some sort of sickness as a, as a as a paradigm and then we've got addiction and we we didn't really want to uh leave it on that kind of negative note um especially since uh David and Rios have welcomed you know a new child and young Gus we want to sort of think more positively but we we did confront this issue that there are some real conflicts in in how we package childhood in America how we package the pre- presumed growth from childhood through adulthood and what the problems are and then if uh whether or not we have time in this episode, where we're moving on that front is is to link that to some other major uh, social issues that seem to have this schismatic, that's a Gregory Bateson uh, idea, Mm -hmm. Um, just a fundamental conflict that leads to cognitive dissonance and a double bind, which is our deeper problem of the modern age. So that's a long way around where, where we're, where we are, where we got to, and where we want to go to, but uh, how how does that as a kind of summation? No, I think it's I think it's great. As you mentioned a bit earlier, I do have some examples of initiation rites. Would you like to hear some of them now, or do we want to start with something else? Well, I think let let's just revisit what okay. how how we got to the 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 question of initiation rights we started off a few episodes back and we devoted quite a bit of attention to this as a, as a core anthropological idea and interest and it was certainly one of the core ideas that i started off my failed doomed uh anthropology career with or you know at least trying to pursue and our our notion was that in america particularly um and maybe this is, is unfortunately more widespread throughout the developed nations, but certainly in American culture, that we have seen a, a just a disturbing collapse of consensus initiation rights. And initiation rights, in order to make sense, to have purpose and meaning, need to have a kind of consensus behind them. Otherwise, there's, you know... There's no significance. At Mm -hmm. most, or at worst case, they can be maybe family-wide. You know, that's better than nothing. But really, in an indigenous culture, we expect them to be community-wide. 
you know, and and kind of something that everybody can count on, and a gen and something that that crosses generations, a link. So it's an important culture with a capital C bridge or vine or rope bridge. You know, it's it's it's. And so we were looking at, at where these kinds of things uh, still exist in the world. And it's very hard to find them in, in American society. And so as a result of that, we said that we have a confusion about how long the childhood period lasts, yeah. what right. distinguishes childhood from adulthood. And I've often heard the expression, you know, Adults are really just children with credit cards, which I think a lot of us have heard that maybe we feel that um, maybe we all feel a certain degree of, of confusion about are we really grown up, you know, or are we just growing older, you know, and there's a big distinction between those two. But if you don't have a war to go off to, if you don't have some major shared experience maybe covid will be that for for a micro generation mm -hmm. but that's where we got to in terms of the importance of initiation rights and the how how when they fall apart instability within cultures lowercase c is almost guaranteed and we can look at this around the world we can look at this in north america in, in uh, Native North American communities, Australia, all parts of Africa, certainly the uh, Oceania that I'm very familiar with, you can actually see it happening. It's, it's a way to disrupt and destroy a culture. There are other ways. There are other ways. Undermining you know, language is, one, is another one. But certainly, if you want to destroy uh, a, a small society's sense of self, and their capacity to reinvent themselves magically and to move forward in time. You destroy their initiation rights. You invalidate them. You, however, it, whatever it takes to uh, compromise them and make them not practiced, that's yeah. the way to destroy the society. So maybe now with that in mind, we could look at some of your examples of Communities, uh, whether they be racial, uh, language-based, religious-based, or a combination, that have taken pains to preserve initiation rights. And we mean really that transition from childhood through puberty, through some emergent sexuality, just to be clear on, on the initiation side of it. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I so, yeah, let's look at some examples. I, you know, it's so funny. Um, while you were talking, just before we get to those, <clears throat> something just lit up in my brain because I was thinking very specifically about uh, what exactly an initiation rite would have looked like to me. And I was going through my mind and thinking about hanging out with my friends, alcohol use, drug use, uh, sports, and nothing was really clicking with me. And then I realized that <clears throat> growing up, we were Southern Baptist, and we went to church every Sunday. And so the closest thing that I had to an initiation rite was a baptism, um, followed by sort of church retreats, community building activities, sort of like that. And while I don't necessarily know where my atheism came from, I think that it might have been finding 
people like Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett on the early internet. Now, these are, for listeners of the show who've listened to all the episodes, they know that these are now kind of our our, our antagonists as far as uh, our pushbacks on materialism are concerned. But I think that these initial thinkers uh, led me to what would now sort of derisively be called Reddit atheism, right? The kind of idea that if I can't see it and you can't prove it empirically, you know, materialistically, that it's just not, it's not real to me. So when I heard you say the way that you destroy a community is by invalidating their beliefs and destroying these initiation rituals in particular, I think from an outside perspective, as somebody who's still not back into the church and as somebody who doesn't buy into the cosmology of the Southern Baptist religion, it still is interesting that these ideas, these atheistic ideas, came in and sort of maybe retroactively destroyed my initiation right. Now, I'd have to think a little bit more about whether or not a baptism into a, a religion that if I'm, you know, being perhaps a little bit harsh but honest, uh, that church wasn't exactly filled with, um, you know, serious practitioners uh, of, of, you know, of the religion. Uh, and I say that based on absolutely nothing but my own intuition. It was very much kind of a prosperity gospel style church, and I tend to get... Uh, strong instincts about con men, and that's how I, f I, I, I feel thinking back about that now. But I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you think that a baptism counts as an initiation rite, or do you think that, that perhaps maybe the way that Christianity works now, broadly speaking, um, invalidates its, itself? Or is it the insidious liberal professors, right, who who've gone and, and taken taken God out of it and retroactively taken my initiation right from me? Well, absolutely, uh, initiation rights take many forms, but there's there's no question whatsoever that uh, baptism baptism is one of the fundamental world expressions of that. I mean, the Christian idea of baptism is only one. Uh, framework for that, but it's it's a very very widespread idea. I was actually uh, baptized in a water hazard of a golf course. Um, my my dad was uh, a little bit lateral as a minister, and he, before he became very lateral as a as a sort of psychologist uh, with the emphasis on sort of psychologist. But yeah, no, I think that the, the baptism idea and, and we have, you know, the expression of in, in war and combat of baptism by fire, you know, there, there's an enormous, uh, world tradition of belief in that experience and that ritual. If you allow for variations, you know, in, in how that gets interpreted and performed, but the, the concept of it is, is certainly really, really important and, and kind of inescapable. So if, if you want to look at your situation in particular, uh, what could be said maybe anthropologically is that there was only one mode of baptism available for you in your growing up, which was not just the Christian baptism, but a particular brand of Christian mm -hmm. baptism. 
you know, they call them Baptists for a reason, you know. Uh, there's, there's an emphasis on a certain approach to baptism that, say, Presbyterians don't have. Um, so there's... The, but the anthropology problem is that you, you didn't have any other options. There was no fallback. There was no alternative. Or I suggest uh, that the alternatives are, are ones that you probably made yourself or that you, either through self-invention or through peer group magic, you kind of cobbled uh, some sort of response to that paucity of options and and manage to you know evolve yourself through to some sort of state of equilibrium with that process mm -hmm. but we don't have many options uh and when one gets invalidated that is the problem it becomes we, we discard the entire idea of uh of baptism and and i think a really basic analogy would be you know if you have uh if there's one subject uh that you don't like uh, suddenly you've thrown out the idea of school, you know, I think it's kind of that way rather than go, well, I don't like this, but maybe I can think of, you know, maybe there's some other alternative. Um, unfortunately our, our, you know, anthropology magic doesn't work like that. We don't have an endless supply of great cultural ideas. And mm -hmm. so if one, you know, falls out of favor, uh, there's nothing to replace it often. It just is an empty hole. And we, we think we move on, you know? Right. Interesting. There's a lot to think about with that. I'm going to put a pin in that for right now, though, and get to these rituals that I found because some of them are pretty fun. These are not all uh, specific to America. Uh, some of the better ones are not, as a matter of fact, but I will start with a few of those. So something that I'm surprised didn't come to my mind when we talked last time was the bar and bat mitzvah, which is a pretty clear transition into adulthood. Very specifically, my understanding of it is that it is the point in time when the young man or woman uh, becomes beholden to Jewish law, and um, it is usually a big a big party, a big dance party. I know there can be some pretty extravagant uh, bar and bat mitzvahs, as with some of the other uh, party-style rituals that I'll get into here. Uh, there is the quinceañera. So the quinceañera, uh, when a girl's 15, quince, right? Um She's essentially showing that she is uh, pure, virginal, and ready for marriage. I've been to several quinceañeras, and they are big parties with big, usually, uh, I, the, all the ones that I've seen have had dance routines, um, usually multiple dance routines with costume changes. So it's basically a huge party. Uh, the mother or father, uh, depending on, you know, the marital status, whatever, usually uh, pay a lot of money to rent out dance halls and deck the whole place out and have a DJ and food and beer. It's usually a really, really great time. Uh, although, when I think about this, and I think also about, you know, Sweet 16 parties, which are sort of the maybe more crass, Americanized, uh, commercialized version of this, right, where it's basically, you know, you're a girl, you're 16 now, here's a, you know, a new car, a new whatever, right? I'm thinking of that show, My Super Sweet 16. Uh, a lot of these right. initiation rites, though, do seem to have an element to them of adults getting together to have fun, right? Because uh, a 15-year-old can't drink beer. Um, and so, you know, having, <laughs> having these big parties where a bunch of people are invited 
and and the adult kind of throws a lot of money on it and there are these fun dance routines uh it's it's interesting that it's a show that seems to be put on largely for adults rather than than other other children uh something that i find very fascinating is the amish practice of rumspringa uh which is where and correct me if i if i get this wrong here but it's where when you turn 16 you are actually allowed to go out into the world and enjoy non-Amish life and whatever that might entail. Now, this is a very interesting initiation practice <laughs> for me because I love the idea of, uh, of, of allowing them to experience the debauchery of the real world, right? You would think that you'd want to keep um, a 16-year-old boy locked away because who knows what he's going to get up to, especially after uh, living a, a button-free life, isn't you know for his whole life. Um, but I don't know. I feel like it's this great example of confidence in their faith and confidence in their culture that they say, you know, yeah, go out, see, see if you like it. Take Vanilla Ice with you. He could be a guide. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I think that uh, Rumspringer is actually a very effective initiation routine. I think that uh, my experience and probably many uh, people who are in their 30s, 20s in modern America's experience is that we get this kind of slow drip of culture from the time we're very, very young. So that by the time we get to 16, you know, we've been around uh, drinking, maybe drugs, unfortunately, uh, and adult life kind of from the periphery, this sort of monstrous thing looming on the horizon. And so that when we kind of get to it, we we dip our toes in and it's that slippery slope, uh, you know, one hit of pop, the ne- pot, the next thing you know, you're, you know, smoking crack in an alley. Um, I'm being facetious, but, you know, that's the kind of idea. But Rumspring, it really does seem to just kind of throw them to the wolves, you know, these, uh, not that they have no contact with modern American society, but it's obviously a more sheltered life than the average American would live. But to kind of throw them out there and say, all right, you're a man now. See if this is what you want to do. I, I just really like that idea. You know, it's kind of like the having a catching your kids smoking cigarettes and having them smoke the whole pack just to see if they really, really <laughs> like it. Oh, <laughs> you're getting some you're getting your techniques ready, polishing them up, you know, early. <laughs> Well, you know, look, there are, there are a few things that, that I think need to be said about what you've run down is that, you know, worldwide, there is a, 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 a shared practice of, of these kinds of milestone moments. And it's a little bit of a, you know, another touchstone would be a wedding or a funeral. Mm-hmm. You know, there are these major life milestones that are celebrated on a community basis and that people do use them as expressions of both generosity but also uh, status prestige social capability you know across oceana this is one of the few times where people communities really eat pig you know we, we might think that wild pigs and uh taro uh are you know the, the staples of the diet. Well, in fact, wild pigs are very special. You know, people uh, in the coastal areas will, will eat fish more, but there are these kind of potlatch sort of ceremonies of uh, that are really important in terms of consolidating communities 
And you think about, you know, extending to the, the marriage idea where, where communities and cultures, uh, lowercase c, have uh, arranged marriages. I mean, what's one of the driving mechanisms? Well, it, it's, it's connection. It's building networks. It's relating families. Uh, you know, this has been a big theme so that the idea and, and when you think about it from uh, the initiate point of view, the child becoming the young person, it makes so much sense because it, it, it isn't just, oh, you've got boobs or your voice has changed or, you know, you're now uh, part of the sexual uh, community. Uh, it's not that at all, you know, because that's not that's not the message we want to send to young people at that age. It's very conflicted. But we do want to, in a social sense, give people an idea of what is acceptable uh, relationship practice and where sexuality figures into the community in terms of stable marriages, new families, uh, new customers, new businesses. You know, there's a lot of social stuff that's much more important than the physical individual changes, you know. Uh, that's only as, as important as that is to the individual. Uh, and what a strange thing. You, you know, you, re, you, know you, you physically change um, in pretty dramatic ways. That it's really the, the social purpose of those changes and the fact that there is a social purpose to them that really is, uh, is what's conveyed in those traditional communities. That's kind of what we mean by a traditional community. I think that would be one of the starting points, don't you, is that those mechanisms would still be in place. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think that that would be... Yeah, that would be a good starting place, I would say. Yeah, so when it comes to initiation rights, then... Uh, there's this idea then that it's also it's it's wider right community based is that is that kind of where we're going with that that it has, yeah. it has more to do okay yeah absolutely yeah i would say that that's totally true and that's true of a lot of the um examples here that i found i have a couple more here uh that get one of them gets a little bloody uh, one of them is fun and then one of them i think might act as a nice kind of bridge between part one and part two um so the first one is the Maasai of Kenya and Tanzania. Are you familiar with what I'm about to talk about? Uh-huh, yeah, but I'm, wanna, I, I'm, I'm eager to hear how you're going to lay it down. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Well, um, so the Maasai, <laughs> when they get to a certain age, uh, they have to get initiated into the warrior class. They have to become a man. And so what they're what they go through is they are given a mixture, and I thought that this was very interesting from a magical perspective. They're given a mixture of alcohol, cow's blood, and milk. And they do that while they are also given a large, they're basically gorged on, on meat. They have to eat a bunch of a bunch of meat. But the the alcohol and the and the cow's blood and the milk is all very interesting to me, especially that that milk part, right? So there's echoes basically. The way I read that is that you have adulthood on the alcohol side of things and then childhood with the milk. And those two things are kind of uh, mixed together in the form of having both the cow's blood and the milk. It's this kind of, um, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Sort of an analogy to, uh, to the actual transformation that they're going through. And then 
uh, without flinching, they are circumcised <laughs> in, a, in a pretty uh, rough way. They are not given any anesthetic, obviously. Um, they are told not to scream, not to, not to even flinch when they're being circumcised. Otherwise, they'll bring shame on their families. Um, that's pretty rough. That, uh, These are general, males. This, uh, this males. is what we, we, yes. we need to clarify here. This is male yes. circumcision. F- yeah. Female circumcision being another issue and, a, and a, yeah. another problem unto itself. Right, right. But, uh, you know, this kind of late stage circumcision, um, I'm sure, I didn't do a ton of research into this, but I'm sure has led to a lot of, um, you know, physiological problems, infection, that sort of thing. But uh, it is a, besides the Satiri Mawe bullet ant initiation, uh, it's one of the most brutal that that I've heard of, right? Um, Actually kind of lopping off that that skin. But there's... um, the, the violence of it makes sense in the same way that the Satiri Mawe bullet ant gloves that we talked about um, several, several months ago has to it, where these are males and women go through the pain of, of childbirth and in general have a lot more uh, pain and, and, and bodily discomfort than, than men do, especially with their menstruation in addition to the aforementioned childbirth. So there does seem to be a premium placed on putting males through an extreme form, uh, particularly in this case with their genitalia, uh, an extreme form of pain as a way sort of into into manhood. It's it's pretty rough, man. Um, I don't know if you have any any thoughts about that before I move on to something a little bit more fun, but I felt that that was important to touch on. Well, my only thought really is, again, this is an example of uh, the mystery of continuity across human uh, cultures around the world, because it is something that does come up. Uh, n- not all, uh, but I mean, I think that the, uh, the group that we would call the, the, the Plains people of North America uh, were famous for really, I, I don't know whether any other way to say it than, than torture rituals. Um, mm. It becomes a kind of hallucinatory experience. So, in 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 some ways, I know anthropologists have argued that it's uh, a replacement for the psychoactive chemicals that uh, may naturally occur in, uh, say, jungle environments. Um, but I don't know if that quite works. But we certainly have many examples of the the rights of maleness. And the movement from boy to man hinging on the warrior cult. I mean, think of mm-hmm. Sparta, you know. Yeah. Um, right. I mean, that's an ancient, you know, Greek example. Uh, and it's so, you know, opposite to sort of our idea of Athenian wisdom and wandering around in togas and, you know, thinking of, of philosophical and mathematical things. Now just come home on your shield dead, you know, yeah, then you're a Jesus. good Spartan, you know. know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we have some really deep conflicts there that, of course, tie into all of, of the gigantic uh, networked quagmires uh, that involve gender roles today. I mean, that, that would be one direction we could spin this off uh, entirely focused on on gender expectations and and gender formula, 
Um, but I, I do just on that sort of idea of expectations and framing, one thing that occurred to me uh, back when you were talking about some of uh, the, the more fun aspects of, of these rituals and the community sharing, it struck me that, that, that many people, not just the initiate, not just the immediate family, but the whole community has an understanding of what this event means and how to interpret it as pageant, theater, ritual, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, however serious it's been or just plain fun, because there is often a, just a fun celebratory side to it. Everybody's clear on that. Um, it just made me flash back to my uh, uh, psychologist friend in Denver. I, I think I mentioned that he's got some annoying habits of being clairvoyant and kind of yes. picked apart my uh, my love life over our last session. But he's done some interesting things where um, he's reached out to uh, young couples who are getting married and, and asked them to, you know, discuss... Uh, their mutual expectations and to have some kind of um, groundwork laid before taking things into say the marriage realm but he does this with with new parents too and I think this is really interesting because he he mentioned that uh, he's done this with about five uh, parent groups they're all about uh, your age Mm -hmm. And uh, first timers, it's important that, that that's really the crux of the issue. It's first time parents. Um, and all of the ones that he's dealt with are people who intended, you know, this is a, 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 a definite evolved state of, of the couple. They're moving forward to raising a family. And he said it was remarkable how different the mother, father, or whatever the company, there, there was, there, uh, there's a gay couple that he has told, but how different the couple, the adult couple's perspectives are on the parenthood experience, what they feel they're obligated to teach, what they feel the whole. And, and you know, you think about that, you think, well, what could be more important to to a culture than to have some sort of agreement on what does being a parent actually mean? You know, you get past the vague stuff of like, well, looking after a child feeding, you know, try to get a little bit more specific in the sense of what are you responsible for in terms of raising a child to be able to do, if you get specific that way. And I think that is a way of looking at some of the conflicts of the modern age, because it really does appear there is just not the consensus agreement about that in America that that we need to have. You know, and I, as you're talking about it, it's reminding me very much of the atomization that we've talked about in previous episodes um very specifically you know basically the connection that i'm seeing there is the difference in thoughts or understandings about how you're supposed to raise a child probably have a lot to do with the um what's the what's the way that i'm trying to put this the different types of consumers that the parents are right so every type of adult that you can become has a lot to do with the kind of adult that your parents are uh, and the kind of adult that your parents are has a lot to do with the ways in which they have been 
uh, sort of initiated by their own pet consumerisms, right? Um, it goes back to that idea of, of capitalist consumerism as being a fragmenting force on a on a community. You have an idea that if you have a um, so, for example, I'll just throw this in here really quick, right? In Ethiopia, you have the Hamar cow jumping. You heard of this? <laughs> awesome. Tell me, so, yes. Yeah, it's one of my favorite ones. So basically, when you reach the age of manhood, you strip down naked and you are asked to jump over a castrated bull um, four times. And then when you do that, you're you're a man. So it definitely beats the Maasai, um, you know. <laughs> Cow's blood and cast and an actual I almost said castration circumcision right, um, so but in these different tribal groups you'd have a community with a shared goal you'd have an idea of what those uh, what the people of the tribe would want to have as a as a goal moving forward and part of one of the issues you know that you're touching on when it comes to parenting and raising children is the idea that um, there is no real shared goal. You know, one set of parents, the goal might be to have their kid become a doctor and live in a nice house and take care of them in their old age. Some might, uh, you know, want their kids to be in sports. Uh, some might want their kids to just own several jet skis in different colors. So you don't have a, a university, a universality rather, of of community goals in the way that these smaller communities, um, particularly. In places like Ethiopia or you know North Baffin Island, right, where the Inuit um, tradition there is one of of hunting, right. Those are all goals that make sense to the day to day, week to week, month to month uh, survival of a tribe, and we don't have that. Patriotism doesn't even come close. No, right? no, of... it doesn't. No, it, 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 that's in an entirely different category on a, in a different level. And I think this is the essential problem with the, the, the complete break with... And, and we, the problem is we tend to think of it in terms of scale and, and, and population numbers. And, and that's, our, that's our only focus because we're looking at remote communities, say in the Arctic or in New Guinea or Central Africa or parts of South America uh, or, you know, many, many parts uh, of Asia, which we think is, you know, teeming in, in terms of population. There are still many remote communities. It's unfortunate that population density and size is kind of the, the first element of thought because it's a much more qualitative breakdown or mm -hmm. departure from practice. And it is very, very confusing uh, for everyone. It, it, I mean, it really, we're, we're seeing the cumulative confusion in Western society and, and American society now that you wonder if there is any kind of repair mechanism that could ever be instilled uh, to, to get some sort of consensus, some sort of shared uh, common ground perspective on what it means to raise children, what it means to grow up from childhood to adulthood, uh, it, it really is uh, very, very scary. And to repeat one of the interesting lines from, from one of our earlier episodes where we really delved into this, and I think it's interesting that we have come back around to it because we felt then it was pretty important. But um, I asked one of the elders in a New Guinea village community to what extent you know the adults really believed in the magic 
of the rituals. And he completely just instantly skirted that question. And he said, well, we don't want a lot of uninitiated boys uh, walking around pretending to be men, Mm -hmm. you know? And I, I think, sadly, that is very much what we feel like in in American society now. I think, you know, for next episode, we could also look at, um, well, if we were to focus on sort of, say, the masculine ideas of this, I think we have an additional problem, not only of young boys uh, staying kind of tragically arrested boys, for uh, their lives, but kind of being neutered as well. That's another sort of aspect that I think that has crept in in the last 10 or 20 years. And I, I can, I'm almost certain that's a, you know, something that's on your mind with Gus that you, you know, you speak of him in terms of being very physical, very determined. Uh, and and there's, there's some very positive feelings about that. And I think you're, you're going to reinforce that decisiveness and uh, a kind of lack of, of trepidation in the world and, and encourage a kind of certain framework of being, which a lot of, uh, well, I can look around my neighborhood, I can see a lot of, of young men don't have that anymore. Um, and I, I didn't see as much of it in places like Australia and, and parts of Africa that I've been in in, in recent times. Uh, it seems very American to me. Um, I mean, I don't even see like that many uh, young kids out playing or riding their bikes together or, mm. or, or having a fight. I mean, I used to, you know, th- there used to be fights all the time in my, and I'm not talking about gun battles or even knife fights, you know, just, just, you know, someone would call somebody out and there'd be a fist fight, you know, and it would be a big event, you know, yeah. uh, and, and we know there's a lot of violence amongst young people, but it's kind of not, it, it, it's, I think it's sadly a lot more serious with, with the, you know, with firearms. Um, but we're, we're, we've just lost the sense of, of children as children, uh, initiates as initiates, because there's no initiation, and then young adults as young adults. We, we just have flushed all that away, and I'm not sure what that leaves us with blobs blobs yes and i think so i think for next episode i wrote down some key phrases here that i really like i like the term repair mechanism i think that's great i also like the idea of adulthood as being a culturally agreed upon uh point um the anecdote that you told about not wanting a bunch of uninitiated boys running around and the fact that the the belief in the magic was completely uh, well, either he didn't want to tell you, or it's really not consequential, right? It's a culturally agreed upon point that they get to, and and well, you know, this is what we agree, and we don't really need to discuss it. So that is an interesting point to me as well. And then also, maybe tangential, maybe not, but the I so you know, the idea of sex education is that you can teach uh, growing young adults that you can have sex without it leading to pregnancy or STDs, right? Um, Similarly, sports sort of fill this this realm, but you're talking about fights, you know, like it's important to also teach kids that you can have violence without death, you know, um, that it doesn't have to be, you know, I see it's the kind of story that so many people have heard so many times about 
kids growing up without fathers and then getting into gangs with gang violence and stuff, you know, where there's this, um, you know, emphasis placed on violence with an aim towards ending another person's life, right? With it being very terminal and final violence. And that could very well come from a lack of uh, understanding the different ways that violence can be enacted. But um, there's two things that I want to... So we have a segue here into our second part, but I'm going to hold off on that for just a second because before we flip over to the Patreon side, last episode you did a really good elucidation and articulation of how part one which is free, this one that you're listening to now, and part two, which is behind the Patreon paywall, uh, the ways in which those are different and how they interact. And because I want people to come over to the Patreon, where we're having a lot of fun, uh, I was wondering if you could give our free listeners um, basically what you said last episode, because I thought it was great. Sure, and it's something that we can reinforce because it's it's good for us to, you know, constantly be be thinking about what it is that that does differentiate these these two different investigations. Uh, so part one is really uh, an improvisational riffing on a set of themes that we think relates to the the particular problems. Of, of the modern age. How, how do we define the modern age? We, want to, we definitely want to move closer to some precision in terms of defining that. Mm-hmm. Some uh, special focus on that. Uh, David and I, may, uh, we, we don't always agree with, with the timelines and the descriptions that other people put forward. We're trying to, to uh, have our own sense of that. But to, to take a, a kind of diagnostic and basic critique approach uh, having fun picking out some things that 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 resonate with things going on in our personal lives, and really laying out some analysis and and dissection, and to hopefully open up that thinking to questions and issues that that you might be dealing with. I mean, there are many many aspects. Uh, we've already done well over forty episodes. We've got you know we're not even close to exhausting this topic, I'm looking at just some very rough bullet points for this episode, and we're not even close to getting through them. So we are not, no. There, there <laughs> is no, there's really uh, no end to this woozle hunt in a sense, although we do think that we can bring some, some fun and some humor and some precision to it. Uh, but certainly the idea is, is a kind of open-ended critique of what it means to be alive in the so-called modern era. How do we flesh that out? How do we give some embodied uh, meaning to that beyond, you know, just some media uh, flippant level thinking? We, we do want to go a bit deeper on that. Part two, however, uh, we really do have a kind of program. It's an investigative program. Uh, we are looking into the notion of culture with a capital C as a kind of animating force, which could be seen as a field of energy, like into the other fields of, of physics. It could be seen as a kind of ecosystem. It could be seen as a kind of entity. Uh, we're, we're really not sure. But we do have an idea that humans individually do not band together to create culture. 
to manufacture culture, which is a, a paradigm that is very commonly thought of in, in human society in terms of anthropology. You know, it, it's a, a bottom-up kind of thing. We also don't necessarily believe in the top down. We're, we're curious. We think that culture with a capital C is something that we are all dependent upon. And we're investigating that from a biological point of view, a psychological point of view, a social point of view, uh, a magical point of view. And we're working hard to give our sense of both animist magic in an indigenous culture sense and occult magic in the western tradition sense we're trying to bring that into some kind of alignment with science as it's practiced at its best and there are some very good examples of of, of heroes of ours and influences jung is certainly one of them rupert sheldrake is is a, is a touchstone we've got kind of an interesting pantheon of of uh, heroes and inspirers. And as David mentioned, we have uh, a kind of uh, obverse uh, pantheon of um, not arch demons exactly, but people that we do take issue with. I think David used the term antagonist, and I think that's very polite and apt. So mm -hmm. in other words, part two is really, we think of it as a kind of search party, an expedition, uh, a communal investigation that we're really building something with a network of people rather than trying to work something out in conventional sort of very academic terms, publishing a book with a university press, stimulating some sort of discussion, maybe over 10 years of time. We're, we're wanting to do things in real time, keep that improvisational buzz of, of part one going, but taking it to a different level, a different place, uh, and I think we're making some interesting headway, although we're not really great fans of the word progress, because uh, for obvious reasons, we're not sure we entirely believe in that. It's one of the things that we query and try to interrogate. So there's, there's some fun going on in, in part two. And we, as we evolve forward, uh, David and I have some big plans. We're going to be including guests at both in both part one and part two, uh, people who have appropriate uh, other perspectives relative to those two different modes of inquiry. So lots of cool stuff. And there are some bonuses in terms of added content, uh, reading suggestions. We welcome uh, feedback. We've gotten some really good feedback, just even on just last episode, which we'll be speaking of behind the paywall. So it's a real chance to, to be part of, of a community of learning, self-teaching, uh, self-reinforcement, and, and magical evolution in a very complicated time. Perfect. Great pitch. And that's why I turn it over to you, because that was, that was very well said. We're having a lot of fun over on the Patreon side of things. Uh, we're seeing it develop in a way that I think is very uh, positive. It's very, it's very hopeful, right? I'm, I'm actually really uh, surprised is the wrong word because I know that what we're doing is really cool. Um, but I, I didn't quite expect for it to be developing as quickly as it is, both in terms of how many people are subscribed to it and actually the kind of places that we're, 
that we're going to. I think that we sort of needed that uh, division and a bit of privacy to talk about some things because I, I also think an important distinction between part one and part two is that, you know, Chris and I are always making sure that we are very deliberate in our pacing to make sure that people don't necessarily get lost, that everybody's on the same page as us, that we're on the same page as us, right? Yeah. And we keep that pace up in the second half, but there's just a bit of creative bravery, I think, that comes out when we know that we have kind of uh, sort of boiled down from the several hundred people who listened to part one to the dozen plus who listened to part two. It's much more, as Chris put it so wonderfully, a search party. And when you're with people who are kind of close in that community, you begin to talk to them, you begin to get ideas from them, and it becomes much more of this fun, uh, collaborative, and also, um, you know, magically resonant thing where I think that some things that we might spend several part ones going over, I think it's fair to say that we don't necessarily do that in part two. We're, we're kind of working from a frame uh, where we sort of trust that people are along for the ride. I think that's really what the subscription helps to cement and solidify in my mind right where we know we know you're on board at that point so we get a little bit uh deeper into the weeds but we brought machetes so it's good exactly right i think that's very well said you know and and uniting both uh both different approaches is is the concept of ceremony which is such a beautiful idea that works across you know, from the very and purely social to the deeply magical and mysterious, ceremony is inherently uh, a human idea and a social communal idea. It's very difficult to have a ceremony entirely on one's own, in one's own terms. You really need that validation and resonance. Resonance and, and connection of frequencies is something that we, uh, a terminology that we use heavily in part two. And we, we feel that resonance and connection with people and are very grateful uh, for that because the a sense of ceremony really does emerge only when, you, when you're sharing and interacting. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. very much what we, uh, we will continue to do. And with your uh, kind and generous attention and support. Yep, absolutely. Okay, so we will make that transition now. We were talking about initiation rites in this episode, and I have a bridge to what Chris and I have been discussing over on the Patreon side, particularly with relating to what we have been calling concretizing uncertainty, uh, but that we have uh, since developed into embodying uncertainty, which we'll talk about more over there because this is a very recent development. But I want to use the uh, Vanuatu uh, uh, land jumpers as a bridge. Or Pentecost land Island, Pentecost Island for yeah. people who want reference. Very, very interesting fertility uh, ritual, as in fertility uh, in, in a gardening uh, food sense. Um, mm -hmm. But it's a central sort of Tenant, and it's it's an absolutely marvelous thing <laughs> to watch. Uh, it's it's horrific and strange, and kind of is a great symbol of all the stuff that we're interested in, really. 
Um, so yeah, I look forward to uh, to taking that that issue up uh, across the paywall, across Excellent. the rope bridge. Join across us on the... the rope bridge. The rope bridge will hold. Yeah, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> oh, yeah, it will. That's, that's always the hope. Yeah, for sure. Okay, excellent. So thanks everybody so much for listening to this episode of No Country. Uh, For those of you who are subscribed, we'll see you over on the other side. And for the rest of you, hope that your week is great and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much. Thank you all. Bye. Hi everybody, welcome over to the Patreon half of this episode of No Country. My name is still J. David Osborne. His name is still Chris Sacknesom. How you feeling, Chris? Hanging in there? Uh, I am, and despite the heat, I've got wonderful things to uh, keep me happy and focused and somewhat magical, even in dense, dense desert heat. Ooh, you know what? That just, that reminds me. I got my tuning fork. You want to hear it? Yeah, I definitely do. Excellent. So I got the tuning fork and the mallet. This is available on Amazon for like 18 bucks. Um, And it's great. I've been holding it up to my head and my heart and my bones. See if you can hear this. Oh, yeah. Hear that too? No, I get it. Yeah. I get it. The vibrations are great. We're all about vibes right now. We're, We're on a vibe thing. Should we just jam for the next hour? Is that what the is that what our patrons want? Well, we've got the implements. We've got the implements. I, I I think to remind people about our paradigm of frequencies, wavelengths, the idea of tuning in. I mean, these are important ideas for reasons. You know, they're they're global, universal human reasons yeah. uh, for it. You know, and it, it's. <laughs> It is not just a metaphor. Right. Uh, it's it's as real as anything can be, you know. Um, you know, yeah. it's just it's all these things that. Uh, oh, that was a bit loud. On <laughs> sorry about that. Andrew will fix it. It's all good. Um, it sounds cool. I uh, before we get started, I wanted to do just a little bit of housekeeping. Um, first of all, Chris and I are definitely eternally grateful that you're over here with us on the expedition party side of things at the Patreon here. Um, but I did just wanted to clear something up very quickly. So as you all who are listening to this are well aware, the show is divided into two halves and I've had some feedback about some of the points that we've made on the show kind of being, uh, let's say kind of going without saying sort of being, uh, stuff that should already be known by both us and the audience in general. And your point is very well taken. Uh, I will take all criticism as long as it uh, helps to make the show better. And, you know, as long as it's constructive and you're not being rude or mean to me. Um, But I just want to sort of not necessarily go back over what Chris has already very well put in the first part of the episode, but, you know, we are attempting this uh, high wire act, this balancing act of both uh, talking to you folks who've come along with us who know all of this cool stuff um, and new listeners to the show. 
right? And we are doing this at a very deliberate pace. I don't think that's going to change for, for much longer. So when, if we go back over something that you feel like, oh my God, you know, this is, we, we get it, we get it, we got to move on. Well, I think that it's important to, you know, take a moment and vibe, right? To play our instruments and our tuning forks and just kind of relax for a second, just to make sure that we're all on the same page, right? We, we all want to go there together. So, you know, that might be a, uh, a flaw in the show for, for some listeners who are used to maybe a bit more fast-paced uh, listening, but um, I think we have a lot to offer, and we just want to make sure that nothing slips through the cracks. So I just want to say that real fast, just as a quick bit of housekeeping. Do you have anything to add to that, Chris? No, I mean, I think it's a work in progress, as all journeys and adventures should be, and this is not rehearsed, it's not scripted, it's not researched by a great staff of people and i've found you know honestly as in in a teaching capacity a formal teaching capacity around the world that that going back over some things you know going back over material doing some some backing and filling is a very useful and appreciated uh method and it, it it it's a way of retaining momentum to truly move forward rather than just rushing headlong into something. And I think that there is a bit of due diligence, too, on our part to uh, to check back on things. I mean, there mm -hmm. are certain things that, that when you say uh, something live, you think, well, I could have maybe said that better, or there's more detail to be provided, or I'm going to check some sources. So there's, there's a lot of, uh, without becoming academic, which is, you know, not our goal at all, um, we're trying to create in a new format, you know, with, with a community-driven dynamic that, as far as I know, hasn't really happened much before. I, there hasn't been a means for it technologically, mm -hmm. certainly not in real time. And that means, uh, you know, a little bit of meander. You know, I, I think meander is good. Sometimes people who get too much to the point too quickly uh, really end up not having much of a point. Yeah. You know? <laughs> right, right. As somebody who falls back on minimalism a lot in my own fiction writing, that point uh, really hits home and resonates. And, um, you know, it's so funny that sometimes these kind of offhand things, when we're talking about something else entirely, but I think I'm actually going to sit on that for quite some time <laughs> with my own fiction writing. It's like, oh my God, I'm getting to the, I'm always in such a rush writing these novels to get to the point. And then it really makes you wonder, right? Do I have a, do I have a point at all? Because if it's worth saying, it's worth taking your time saying, I think a little bit. Um, but yeah, did you want to get any other kind of house cleaning out of the way before we dive back into the expedition party? Uh, not so much housekeeping, really, but, but just kind of general uh, news. Uh, I'm really enjoying uh, my experience with Tashin Books, T-A-S-C-H-E-N. Yeah. They're really a fine arts publishing company, but they do a lot of interesting cultural studies. Uh, I've got quite a range of their books, certainly in terms of photography, uh, the history of art, their modern art stuff is fantastic, but there are, are two books in my collection that I uh, that are very relevant to uh, the No Country investigations. Uh, one is called Alchemy and Mysticism, 
and the other is uh, Symbolism, which are both in their Library of Esoterica collection. And I think they're just stupendous books. They're from a visual arts point of view, they're just lovely to behold. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, the the scholarship and the and the, the writing is extremely high quality. And I frankly find the prices uh, very, very attractive for this quality of publishing. Uh, there's some interesting stuff going on. And if you look at their total catalog, there's a lot of great uh, erotic adult material, interesting pop culture studies stuff. It, it's a real great mix of things. Certainly in, in architecture and modern art, there, there, this stuff is just gorgeous. And they are having a big sale on at the moment for people who uh, might you know, want to even, you know, uh, take advantage of that affordability uh, all the more. So that's my only sort of housekeeping thing. Um, that's great. But just a little sort of tidbit of, of you know, info for our listeners that uh, it's important that to remember that there are great publishers still out there um, and there are cool books that you can hold in your hand and that you want to show pictures to other people or find out some information that maybe you knew and maybe you didn't you know yeah uh yeah the um we have collections of books for a reason exactly yeah and the the tarot and astrology books are in particular quite lovely uh they're on sale really good oh just by the way so people know we uh aren't being paid to say this we don't have affiliate links uh we've been asked specifically to provide reading recommendations and i think chris is right on the money with this one because um you know, when we have the internet and you think you can just Google whatever image you want and see anything at any time, but that's really fundamentally not true. I think as time goes on and we spend more and more time on the internet, we begin to realize how um, how much stuff has actually not been put online and how many things are still between the pages of books, right? Or between the covers of books, I should say. Um, so the, the tarot and the astrology... Uh, I think are definitely worth picking up. I'm looking at them right now. And yeah, the price is right, man. It's like 25 bucks and it's usually 40 bucks. And these are really great full color illustrations, uh, great history, especially in the in terms of the tarot one. Um, I'm fascinated by astrology, but it makes my head spin. I know a bit more about the tarot. <laughs> so I can definitely vouch for this uh, tarot one as having some really uh, cool stuff inside of it. So yeah, I think that's our book rec for for this particular episode is to just maybe go check out that Tashin catalog because I think now is probably the time you want to do it. I don't, as a person who published books for six years, I actually don't know how they can afford to sell these books for twenty five bucks. But yeah, they, I mean they gotta they gotta have some kind of bead on you know a Chinese printer or something that can you know put these things out for pennies on the dollar because. Um, book printing especially full color printing like this ain't cheap uh so yeah 25 bucks is just crazy yeah they really are beautiful artifacts in that sense they're the kind of books that that you if you had to move house you, you'd feel okay you know moving a crate of these around you know it's and that's not true of all books you know um so now that they, they are really cool um and i just have one other thing to uh touch on before we uh, jump into uh, the episode and revisiting some of the, the key points from last time, uh, language is always one of our uh, 
major themes. And we've been looking at the idea of the frame as both a conceptual notion and a physical and symbolic notion, how frames, in a sense, determine content and perception of content, and the larger issue of, of categories. With Gilbert Riles, the British philosopher, his thinking about category mistakes, and a wonderful book called The Concept of Mind. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's British philosophy, but it's modern British philosophy. Uh, but it's about as clearly written uh, as, as anything that complex can be. And it has a lot to do with how language, uh, how mistakes in language and mistakes in understanding happen and how they continue to happen and how they reinforce themselves happening through category mistakes. So I started thinking about that word category. It's a big, it's a big idea. And I realized, and this is the, this is, kind of the one of the messages of this episode is that sometimes it's important to do some backing and filling because what we end up doing is we remember something that we had learned but maybe had just put aside for the moment and I realized that category comes from the Greek kategoros which means the accuser Think of that for a moment, of that deep, tonal, perhaps even moral, but certainly tonal and kind of shadowy sense surrounding that word. I mean, if one were, uh, you know, if we were playing like, you know, you have to be a superhero, you pick a name out of a hat or be an archetypal character, perhaps pick a name out of a hat, Categoros. Uh, you'd be the accuser, you know? And that's a really interesting way to think about categories as one of our fundamental linguistic and conceptual tools that makes any kind of distinction and differentiation and therefore any unification possible. So that's one of these examples which we will continue to pick apart and and discover and try to uh, put under a microscope in our in our search in, in this segment um, that language offers clues to deep deep structures of association and perception and therefore communal sharing or missharing miscommunicating uh, it's it's a very very interesting idea categorist the accuser so the idea of categories is from the very beginning, not a neutral idea at all. Yeah, when I think of the acute, that's so interesting to have this prosecutorial idea of concepts and things, right? <laughs> like we almost it brings to mind a like a jailer. I think of a judge or a jailer putting everything into a particular cell but that implies that the things within a category have have done something wrong to get themselves there um which is yeah that's just an interesting way of of thinking about things right of of you kind of accusing something of being in a category 
It's fascinating. I'd have to think about that some more, but I have that written down because that is that's awesome. Well, it's it's a really really deep idea because as Rawls and and, and many other thinkers in this line uh, point out that that the idea of a category is some kind of deep similarity in logical type, you know, significance, weight, depth of field, relevance, you know, an, an enormous number of distinctions and really important ideas are flowing around anytime you put two different things in, in the same category. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's a big, big thing of thought to be up to. Um, so anyway, that that's just a good starting point. But for people who are new to part two, and our uh, expedition party approach, certainly the interrogation of language. Uh, oftentimes, there are things that are hidden away in, in language. Uh, you know, David was talking about getting to the point or not getting to the point fast enough. Lewis Thomas, who is one of my favorite prose writers, the great doctor and neuroscientist, but also a, a, a good uh, linguist, uh, wrote that, the amazing thing about language is that it allows us not to come to the point. Um, <laughs> right. Which is, which is a very heavy thought. And then, so people go, well, what, what, what happens then? Well, we tune in in different ways is what happens because we have many, many different channels that we're working on. And we often forget that. Mm -hmm. uh, we often forget just how much evolutionary capability we have in terms of, of communication. Uh, we're, we're geniuses if, if we tune into it and uh, ignorant uh, if we ignore. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, I love the idea of something not coming to a point because it suggests a state of play, which I think is fundamental to the show as a whole, but particularly what we're doing here, the sense of fun and play and explore, exploration. Um, because, you know, uh, coming to the point very quickly has a very sort of uh, transactional feel to it, you know, as, as though, you know, hey, okay, I'm here, uh, you know, I'm, I'm ready for the answers, right? I'm, I'm ready to be given answers. Well, you know, I think Chris and I both have bad news for you there, where we have lots of, <laughs> I'm afraid, you know, you know, you might have come here for, for an answer, but uh, we're, we're fresh out. We just have a uh, new and interesting questions though we have shelves and shelves of those so um yeah but on that note uh where would you like to pick up our discussion about quantum collapse and the concretizing to use a decidedly clunky phrase of uncertainty and uh oh you know what actually i'm talking but i had that didn't i i have the, i have the bridge would you like me to start or would you like to sure. do a preamble? No, I, I think I think if you're on, on the rope bridge, I think you should take off across the river. Okay, excellent. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, <laughs> I was about to pass it off to you, and then I thought, wait a second, hold on, I have this. Okay, so uh, Vanuatu and the, um, the the great towers that they build, the, the land divers build to jump off of. This is an initiation, right? Do you, Chris, do you know, I couldn't find it. Do you know if there's an exact age or is it more of a spectrum like the Maasai? Uh, there is an exact age in the sense of, of, of puberty, really. But mainly there have been people who are older now who have done it. it it's, it's male uh, participants. 
Um, and it, it, it's often a prestige thing related to who they are in the community, um, mm-hmm. who they are, you know, related to uh, the, the head man. Uh, it's, all of this is happening on a very small island called Pentecost Island um, in the Vanuatu archipelago, which is basically to the east of Australia. It's, it's the southernmost part of, of Melanesia or the Black Islands of the Western Pacific related to the Solomons, New Caledonia, and New Guinea. Uh, and it's to the west of Fiji. Fiji is, is very far east, but is still connected. Um, the, the Vanuatans have, which is formerly the New Hebrides in colonial times, if people um, remember that, uh, they are very, very innovative in terms of religious practices. And it's it's absolutely fascinating. They they incubate interesting religious ideas. So religious innovation is not something that is kind of uh, ancestral and finished. Mm-hmm. It's a dynamic process. So who the divers are, are are different than who they used to be. But I think what we could say is that this is a uh, food fertility fertility of crops. Uh, ritual uh, that has an overlay of sky god, the the earth diver, uh, which is a motif that we see in northern northern Native America um, cultures. It's uh, well, quite a few cultures around the world. The Egyptians, you know, they had a very strong sense of that. It, it, it's a global motif, um, but the idea is for someone to get up on this enormous scaffolding. They're like 70 feet high, sometimes, you know, at least. And these are, you know, bamboo uh, creations that look quite uh, like the cargo cult stuff that David and I spoke about uh, early in the series in, in our part one segments. Uh, so it, it isn't precisely age driven, but it is, uh, it's a young person. And it does tie in with an initiation on the individual level. But this is much more of a community fertility, blessing the land, blessing the people, uh, blessing uh, the taro and uh, sweet potato crops. Um, Taro is very important. It's another sort of starchy sort of tuber thing, which is the hub of the whole deal. Um, And you get to like taro after a while. particularly if you drink a lot of kava, Mm -hmm. um, it somehow brings that out. But uh, it's certainly an important uh, honor, let's say, to be chosen. So here here is this individual risking life and limb, quite literally, but it is seen as a great honor to, to be in that position and to be atop the scaffolding and to risk death you know mm-hmm. for the community mm-hmm. yes because they climb up this very tall tower i have written down here in my notes that some of them get to be 98 feet high i think was the. i think that would be right yeah, yeah. i think that, I'm, I'm certain that there would be you know they and i'm not sure of the differences at different times mm-hmm. uh but but certainly between 70 and 100 feet absolutely yeah. so it's it's serious business um, yeah. absolutely it is yeah. it's terrifying to watch oh I can imagine because what they do is they wrap a vine around their feet and much like a bungee jump they then jump off of this tower and um, 
it is not uh, unheard of for the vine to break, to snap, and for people to die doing this. Um, so you might be wondering, okay, so what's the connection here? Well, of course we have the connection to initiation rites. Um, as Chris said, it is a fertility and food rite. Uh, also has to do with uh, you know a young person sort of coming into maturity, being chosen for this, as he said, is a great honor. Um, but you know, here in part two, we've been talking about the idea of what we call concretizing uncertainty, which uh, Chris had a good suggestion for a new word that we can use that's a bit less clunky to say and has a a little bit less of um, you know baggage surrounding it, and that is embodying uncertainty. And when I heard that and I, I thought about the fact that we had these, you know, Pentecost Island land divers here, I thought, what better way to symbolize embodying uncertainty than by strapping a vine to your feet and jumping off of a hundred foot tower, you know? Um, because in doing so, it's risky and it's dangerous, sure, but you are definitely sort of playing up you know, the uncertainty of what might happen. And it occurs to me that childhood might be marked by um, a kind of a kind of certainty in a best case scenario for how your day might go. Your parents ideally are setting up your day as such to where when you wake up, you have breakfast, lunch, dinner, different activities, school, uh, whatever might be going on on this particular island, right? And then Adulthood is marked by, well, in the West, obviously, more routine, um, but in a culture such as the one that we're talking about, uncertainty might be a better fit for adulthood, at least relative to childhood, right? So we have danger on the one hand, but really um, a kind of throwing it all up to chance, in a sense. Is that, do you see what I'm doing with that read there. I'm not sure if you know more about this particular right than I do, so I could be way off base, but that's the way that it struck me at least. Well, no, I mean, I, I, I have, um, you know, been to that island. I, I certainly am very deeply interested in the whole Melanesian religious animus magic thing. But I, I think you read it that it is, is, is perfectly sound. And this is the kind of ritual that does repeat around the world. It's, there is a, a global human uh, culture with a capital C ghost radio signal instinct at work here that we do see in, in you know, cultures, lowercase c, all around the world and throughout history. So I, I think you're absolutely uh, on the money with that. Um, what's interesting, I think, is the ceremonialization, uh, the embodying of this inherently quantum degree of uncertainty, doubt, hope, and danger you know, which mm -hmm. the adults mm -hmm. are aware of. And to some extent, I mean, what, what they would see is the initiation process is the movement of children individually and communally through the barrier of accepting adult leadership on the level of certainty, uncertainty in, in their local world and their universe, therefore. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And they, the children become awakened to the realization of quantum danger. Yeah, right. Quantum uncertainty across the board. And what, what is the protection? What, what, are the, what is the, the repair mechanism, the healing mechanism, and also the navigational tool? Well, it's, it's this kind of ceremony. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. They, they have an, a, a total individual and communal connection with the power, the purpose, and the rationale or raison d'etre behind ceremonies. Right. Uh, because otherwise it would just be too talk about jumping off a giant. It would be really jumping off into nothingness, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it also seems to me that when we're talking about uncertainty principles, it's bringing to mind things like uh, random number generators. Uh, there have been great experiments at the Burning Man Festival um, to use random number generators positioned all over the world and to sort of analyze them for for deviations. And in Burning Man in particular, when they burned the Wicker Man, they noticed a substantial deviation, right, from from the norm of the other number generators. Um, So with that, with things like magical rituals, with things like these initiation rites, with kind of uh, throwing young people into danger and engaging with uncertainty in the way that we've been talking about in terms of engaging with the ghost radio signal. To me, it also, it, it doesn't seem to me to be throwing uh, these these young people to the wolves or anything like that, or trying to instill a sense of fear, um, but rather it seems to be a process of developing agency, right? And I think that perhaps, uh, where this half of the show and the first half of the show might be intersecting um, in a healthy culture, uh, an initiation rite might look like uh, the the bestowing of agency upon uh, young people in a quantum uncertain world. I think that's beautifully said, and I think it gets to the heart of an enormously profound uh, cultural, spiritual difference between the kinds of communities that were basically indigenous, traditional animist communities and the developed nation mindset of consumerism, commercialism, and endless victimhood. Uh, You know, the constant fear of, of predation you know, from bullies and cyber bullies and scams and on and on and on. We live in a constant state of fear. And because in, in many ways, our, our society has, has nurtured us to be paranoid, to be afraid, to not feel confident in our agency. I mean, look at, you know, social media in the developed nations today. I mean, it is a laboratory of self-esteem problems, as my psychologist friend says. You know, it is the the ultimate Eden laboratory of neurosis Mm -hmm. and lack of empowerment. And when you think about it, it's really just the logical consequence of the way that we raise children, the way that we've all been raised. Mm -hmm. And we haven't really been nurtured to find and be 
relatively certain of, talk about certainty and uncertainty, mm -hmm. to be relatively certain of at least a capacity for agency within us that is not dependent purely on uh, socioeconomics. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, it's mm -hmm. something deeper. It's, it's our spirit. It's our soul. It's our intestinal fortitude. It's our character. You know, mm -hmm. we, we have a lot of lip service about that in the West and in American society. But it's very difficult to, to look out and, and pinpoint the socially consensus agreed upon ceremonies that in, in really impart that into young people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And as far as modern society goes, those particular ones, as you said, are all based around, um, well, I would say kind of the incorrect things. You know, I'm, I'm thinking again uh, to go back to something that we talked about on an earlier episode and to tie it into um, our, our, our concept here. Uh, I'm thinking of the earth mover, you know, that great story about taking apart the earth mover and, and, yes, and putting, uh -huh. putting them back into the earth mover. So when it comes to the crystal radio, right, um, the crystal radio, what, what's, the, what's the value in doing elephant toothpaste experiments, you know, with your kid, besides it being a bonding experience or whatever? Or what's the, what's the value in putting together, you know, a crystal radio. Well, it's, again, it has to do with this, you know, placing of yourself as, as an agent within all this kind of uh, quantum uncertainty. Um, I think that I lost the track there. Damn it! <laughs> no, you're you, well. I, you, you're you're. Um, I mean, I I can fill in in terms of thank you. What I think the value of of the the, the crystal radio paradigm and method is this sense of definite personal agency in 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 a do-it-yourself garage science project family uh, working together around the table, building a tree house, mm -hmm. this sense of being able to do things on one's own rather than being dependent as passive consumers, right. getting something out of the box. No, let's take something apart and see how it works. I mean, if you look at you know young kids who you think will have a kind of engineering you know, capability. Well, they're, they're taking apart cuckoo clocks. They're, mm -hmm. they're taking mm -hmm. the wheels off uh, radio flyer carts. They're, they're fooling with stationary engines. They're interested in electricity. They're, they're willing to make some mistakes. So there's some character-driven issues here of being able, willing to fail and not being afraid of failing. I mean, you know, sometimes there could be dire results. A chemistry set could explode. I knew a kid like that. He had these great, this great burn thing all coming down his, you know, scars coming down his neck onto his chest. And he was kind of like a mystical, he was one of the archetypal kids that I grew up with because he'd been through the fire, you know? And he looked like, you know, not just his scars. And as we got a little bit older, you know, I used to think, oh, I'm not sure what the girls are going to think about that. Well, 
I'll tell you what they thought about it. Some of them thought it was pretty cool, you know? You know, it was, you could feel it. You know, they could close their eyes and they could feel, you know, it wasn't some, It wasn't like a tattoo. It was like, this was some real stuff. And so I think that that sense of agency is crucial to the crystal radio idea and, and passing that that know-how and that can-do and that let's have some fun and let's take some stuff apart, you know, and maybe we'll put it back together again, right? And, and maybe we'll have a bunch of other pieces left on, you know, the sheet in the garage. But what a great learning lesson. That, I mean, how do you learn? You know, this is the thing. Our model now is, well, we just stick a hose in our head and, and that's it. And unless something's really fun, you know, everything's going to work out, you know. And you yeah. think, well, find a field of life where that's true. That's not true in making a cake or having sex or playing a musical instrument or driving a car. or You can't think of anything like that, you know. But if you if you encourage people when they're still really, truly vulnerable to think about vulnerability and to be afraid of getting the wrong answer, you know? I mean, well, you've destroyed the educational capacity of generations of people, you know? But if you turned it around and just said, nah, let's make an interesting mess, and rather than getting the right answer, let's have another interesting question. Right. You know? Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, the word that comes to mind is uh, the word that you came up for for our new concept. Right. Uh, you know, not came up for, but are utilizing, which is embodiment. What you know, what embodies the sense of agency of putting yourself out there into the world, then your friends burn scars is chemical burns. You know, sometimes you take apart the earth mover to see how it works and maybe a piece falls off and now you have a piece of the earth, earth mover in you right? It's uh, almost sexual in nature. You know, fluids are getting passed between you two and you end up coming apart, away from it, you know, more man than machine, I guess, but a little bit of machine. Um, go ahead, sorry. And that line is really important to keep blurring, you know? Yeah. I mean, we, we want to blur the categories to the extent that we we really have rethought them and that we're sure that category boundaries are things that we've actually investigated ourselves in that crystal radio way, you know, to really uh, to really engage with it. Mm -hmm. And also to just be willing to engage with the idea of engagement that, that is beyond our normal terms. I mean, while you were talking, I just thought of this because you've spoken about these great uh, sort of... Uh, you know, Mexican magical stores, whether they were in El Paso mm -hmm. or, you know, you know, things that are selling sort of, you know, folk remedies and love charms and all these things. Well, when I was in uh, teaching in South Africa last, there was this great store on the corner and it, you know, it just smelled so exotic and weird, kind of like kind of like sex in a way because mm -hmm. some of it was really good and inviting some of it was really weird like oh i don't know you mm -hmm. know it was like a really strange you know club that you could disappear into and never never get out but it was it was a shop front full of jars and you know all sorts of herbs and all sorts of crazy stuff flowers dried flowers bones on and on and on well 
And I would just go in there to, to chat with the owners. They were this really cool, very, very archetypal couple, perfect for the store. And the big arts festival was on the big national arts festival. And I was, I, I'd done my performance in that, which was really cool. And I was just sort of wandering around various uh, venues for performances and gallery exhibits. But I, I wanted to check them out and see what was going on. And there were these British tourists in there. And talk about, I mean, archetypally British, you know, <laughs> ruddy-faced, yeah. uh, just, you know, not super sophisticated, educated Oxford, Cambridge, sort of West London uh, British people, more a little bit more like Leeds, yeah, you know, right. or, uh, you know, somewhere kind of a little more regional. And they were asking about, in, in these, at first it was very shy voices, but I... I kind of made him speak up. They were asking about love charms Hell and yeah. sex magic. That's what's you know? up. And I thought, fantastic. You know, here are these people. in They're almost wearing tweeds in this dense African heat, you know. Mm -hmm. And they've probably just seen these amazing dancers, just, you know, these beautiful bodies. And everything is just really erotically charged. And yet they're still sort of very middle-class British. Yeah. But they're asking about the sex magic. And... The woman in this just wondering, does this really work? And the uh, the husband who of the store owner said, if he can wrap one of your hairs around the leg of a spider, you will never forget it. Wow. And they just didn't know how to process that information. They had no idea. And I don't, I, mean, I don't know if he was serious. It doesn't matter. This is where the idea of tuning into people mm -hmm. beyond, you know, the language level. Right. Uh, but it just inspired the living shit out of them. Yeah. And they were off to to make whoopee in whatever middle-class <laughs> British way because they had smelled the weird leaves. They had this idea of him harvesting one of her hairs, you know, from where, what part of her body, who cares? Mm -hmm. And could he ever get catch a spider? It didn't matter. No. They had gotten the charm, you know? Right, right. No, I like that a lot. I think that the way that the husband of the shop owner was speaking there is the way that more people we've talked about this right um this that's the way that people should speak to each other in general and a lot of folks are going to think that you're weird but you're gonna you know hit more often than you miss i think because you know we get so bogged down with uh with language and you know making sure that we're you know getting to a point and things like that and all of this embodying idea that we have whether it's with the crystal radio or the land divers, or it, or you know, having agency and interacting with the ghost radio, it involves um, uh, wordless language, like the kind that we talked about with uh, tarot, which has been a concept that I've been thinking about a lot because I tend to, as a you know, as a writer, perhaps you know, this this was the completely wrong track to go on uh, as far as my writing career goes, but I have been very focused on words kind of my whole life to the detriment of other experiences outside of that. So I'm notoriously bad at, as you know, as you recommended last episode, 
reading the instruction manuals to things, but to for really kind of grokking what is written in those things, like what it means in a tactile sense, how to interact with the world around me. I'm awful at sports, never, uh, well, I was okay at soccer, but I was never good at really anything else. But, um, you know, this idea of engaging in the wordless languages of, you know, you know, tactile interactions and blood mixing with things both uh, animate and inanimate, you know, inspirited and not inspirited and sold and not insold, I think is so uh, kind of fascinating and is just one kind of tool in the toolkit of uh, the shaman, right? The, the modern magician or person who has a sort of understanding of how the world outside of our of our language works. Fascinating stuff and very important, I think. It's important for everyone to think, I mean, I think it is absolutely connected with the shaman, the brujo, the, the lulai, the, the, you know, all cultures have different sort of ways of saying this magical uh, intermediary uh, psychopomp type of, of, of character, archetypal figure who is able to move between the worlds able to cross the rope bridge, you know, mm -hmm. over, over the rivers. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's, it's a challenge for us all because we, we really do know that, that language, and this is one of the great themes of, of modern literature in, in, in terms of our, our prosecution of the idea of the modern age, we really see a movement uh, in, in, in the very best writing to celebrate language in a beautiful, lyrical, expressive sense, mm -hmm. but also the, the, the increasing awareness of language used for obfuscation, for defense, for camouflage, for, uh, for combat as a weaponized you know, expression. It's, it's a very conflicted sense about the possibilities of language. So unless we kind of adopt something of a shamanistic approach to language, I think we're, we're really uh, hamstrung mm -hmm. in, in, in the midst of the quantum uncertainty we face. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I notice about people, and I think you can see it in very, very young people, perhaps uh, Gus is a little too young, but I think this will begin to, to I, I think if you're paralinguistically, uh, to use Gregory Bateson's idea, is... is if you're tuning into him on that level, as I know you are, you're kind of obligated to as parents, you see a kind of attitude to uncertainty. You see either, I think, I think the spectrum is fairly fiercely divided between people who are really resistant, if not fearful of uncertainty, and people who actually kind of savor it and think of it as, uh, an opportunity for extrapolation, for invention, for mutual sharing, you know, and you can see it in conversational terms. There are people who really can't deal with uh, any lapse in conversation mm -hmm. and they can't deal with any open-ended questions. There are people, uh, to my great amazement, I, I continually run into people and, and I think I freak them out because I do ask them questions. And I, I'm not doing that just, you know, to be polite. Part of it is I was trained that way, yeah, and, I, and I, I support those values. But I'm just, you know, friggin' curious yeah. about things, you know. Right. 
And I think of people who come before me as, uh, you know, well, this is, they've wandered into my laboratory, even if they don't know it, yeah. you know? No, that's... This experiment is ongoing. That's great. It really is fun. And you find that it's a great conversation. Um, you know, it's it puts some juice behind it when you really start asking people questions. Because a lot of people are, I think, embarrassed about what they do on a day-to-day -day basis. But, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff in pretty much all of it, you know? So just, if you just keep asking, you'll usually find, you'll get to like really weird stuff really quickly because somebody will say something that's just completely out of the, like that will be very similar to that hair wrapped around a spider's leg comment. And then you'll think, well, hang on, what, wait, what does that mean? Where did that come from? There's all this, right. there's all this stuff, man, that's just bubbling under the surface of all these quote unquote normies or squares, right? Everybody's just waiting to get that out of them. And you can just, just by asking, but you brought up in our correspondence, something that I think is right along the track of what we're talking about here. So I think it's a good place to put it. And that is uh, Burroughs concept of hieroglyphic silence. And I found uh, the, the essay hieroglyphic silence is from uh, the third mind which is a book of cut-ups that Burroughs co-authored with uh, Brian Geisen, who I'm not familiar with. Are you familiar with Geisen's work? Uh, yeah, he, he was an interesting... Uh, I mean, they were romantically involved with, oh, okay. you know, with each other, but, but they were better as artistic collaborators. They, they met in Tangier. Uh, Geisen knew a lot about Moroccan culture. He knew a lot about Moroccan magic and a lot about Moroccan music. He ran a restaurant and uh, was was actually forced to leave when uh, one of his disgruntled staff members launched a black magic campaign against him mm. with you know dead animals in certain uh, parts of the restaurant and mm. his the rest of his staff uh, taking the black magic very seriously uh, left yeah so he he decamped to Paris with Burroughs and and they. Um, lived in what was called the uh, the Beat Hotel and do, started doing a lot of uh, experiments. And the third mind's a cool... Their, their idea comes from um, uh, Think and Grow Rich. Uh, oh, okay. Burroughs borrowed that idea from this self-help book, which I think is very funny. But the idea is something that we all can apply. And I think uh, David and I are sort of doing this every episode, is that when two minds come together on a project... A third and higher mind becomes present. Ooh, the third so, man in the woods. Yeah, yeah we're third. back. See, everything connects. That's, okay, that's so, 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 take us through what what he meant by the hieroglyphic silence because it's a cool idea. Well, I will definitely do that. Before I do that, I'd like to actually read this excerpt, and this is going to be a fun experiment that you can do at home, listeners. What I want you to do is to go on Google and find a picture of Egyptian hieroglyphics and have that open. Don't necessarily have to look at it while I'm reading. In fact, uh, it would probably be better if you didn't. Alternatively, uh, I will link in the show notes to a the actual picture that is in the book that you're supposed to look at. Um, but don't look at it just yet. But follow me here, okay? So this is an excerpt from Hieroglyphic Silence. All right, let's put it apple pie simple. 
with a picture of a wedge of apple pie there containing 53 grams of carbohydrates. Well now, if you don't know the word for apple pie, where you happen to be and want it, you can point to it, or you can draw it. So when and why do you need a word for it? When and why do you need to say, I want apple pie, if you don't care about how fat you're going to get? You need to say it when there isn't an apple pie there to point to, and when you don't have your drawing tools handy. In short, words become necessary when the object they refer to is not there. No matter what the spoken language may be, you can read hieroglyphs, a picture of a chair or what have you. It makes no difference what you call it, right? You don't need subvocal speech to register the meaning of hieroglyphs. Learning a hieroglyphic language is excellent practice in the lost art of inner silence. It would be well today if children were taught a good many Chinese ideograms and Egyptian hieroglyphs as a means of enhancing their appreciation of our alphabet. If you're able to look at what's in front of you in silence, you will be able to write about it from a more perceptive viewpoint. What keeps you from seeing what's in front of you? Words for what's in front of you, which are not what's there. As Kor Zibsky pointed out, whatever a chair may be, it is not a quote-unquote chair. That is, it is not the label quote-unquote chair. So, now try this. Pick up your Easy Lessons in Egyptian Hieroglyphics by Sir E.A. Wallace Budge and copy out the following phrases. These are lifted from the text, and he has the page reference here, but I'll just read the excerpts. They fall down upon their face in land their own. Stood the prince alone in the presence of the gods. The lock of hair which was in the wind. Giver of winds is its name. Coming forth, waiting for thee from of old. Night that of the destruction of the enemies. Come thou to us, not having thy memories of evil, come thou in thy form. In the writing of the God himself, he writeth for thee the book of breathings, with his fingers his own. Shall it be that thou wilt be silent about it? Now, having heard the above passage, turn to the hieroglyphs and read in silence. Kind of cool, right? It's very cool, and it's it's one <laughs> of those things that ties. I mean, God, the lock of hair. We you know, we said everything connects. You know, it's always I true, know, right? I thought that. <laughs> I thought that as I was reading it, I was like, oh shit, there's the lock of hair. Yeah, uh, means know, we're on the right path, Chris. Yeah, just on call, and it ties in with with, with a very. Uh, I mean, and we said it. It's it's just uh, well, it's it's pig simple. There, yeah. The most significant things in life are easy to say and very difficult to do. And to train that interior voice in our heads is a very, very mysterious project. And it really is a, a, a path to new perspective, 
to a real shift in the possibility of frames, to a new kind of agency in terms of dealing with categories, uh, a new level of perhaps not control, but competence with the magic of language and conceptual movement through culture. You know, if, if we can be more shamanistic in, in that way, in, in just our basic lives, and uh, one of the the points that David introduced us to in, in our first discussions about character and archetypes was the idea of, of course, that there these aren't features and creatures of just mythology and great world art. They're around us all the time. There are people mm -hmm. that we know and say hello to every day. And we, in fact, may be archetypal characters ourselves in other lives. Part of the growth of self-awareness, the idea of learning and, and self-knowledge in any sense, <clears throat> has a lot to do with, with coming to terms with how other people see us, you know? And, yeah. and we yeah. are, in fact, uh, characters. We, we may not feel that we are larger than life, but we may be that to, to other people. We may be somebody's first, you know? in many different capacities. I'm for my niece, her crazy uncle, you know, I'm the eccentric, I'm the black. There's a whole package of, 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 you know, character descriptions for me. Am I really that? Well, yeah, sort of, uh, you know, I mean, sometimes it is all about make believe. We forget sort of make believe is an interesting idea. It really, is there a difference between make-believe and believe? I don't think so. You know, Jack London said, I'm not really a writer. I just pretend rather well, you know. And I, I think there's a lot of that going on, is that when we accept the possibility of navigating the, the archetypal psychic ecosystem through mechanisms like the tarot, through education and reading, through meditation, through music, through sharing with friends, through interview. The interview interrogative process is very, mm -hmm. very, very, it's a great way of exposing new thought patterns. When we do that, we, we find more agency in, in that intermediate and, and secret world. You know, we really do. And we don't if we if we get scared and don't even start. You know, we we're gonna make a mistake. Oh my God, David, yeah, what happens right, right. now? I know, and that is I. So this is great because I feel like we're uh, we're chipping away, chipping away, and a beam of light just came through. Right? You know, we're 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 getting very very close to something because yeah, that the logical next step for all that is that that is a way out of uh consumerist modernity right like that's that's kind of our what you just mapped out there is kind of our escape route yeah i mean it's i think it, it, it's it's certainly the escape hope you know it, it, it's a way yeah. forward uh it's mm -hmm. a way to stay on the move you know in that solomon island sense of no fortress no siege you know, that's a mm -hmm. core idea that that goes completely against Western thinking of like, well, we've got to circle the wagons, you know, <laughs> we've got to get back to the fort, you know, keep keep the home fires burning. It's like, well, 
maybe we should be a little bit lighter on our feet and stay mobile, you know? Uh, yeah. What about that as an idea? And we don't, of course, always mean mobile, you know, literally and physically. Everyone needs a roof over their head or a tent over their head or something. But we could be more flexible in terms of our ability to engage with the world and to, to deal with the uncertainty of new kinds of information. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. this is one of the things I... I teach with my classes, my formal classes, I say, you know, the importance about vocabulary is is not necessarily learning new words to seem smarter or even having more ammunition or more tools in your writerly toolkit. Mm -hmm. It it's to feel more relaxed in the face of unfamiliar information. So you're yes. not on defensive posture and you know, you're openly investigating it you're going oh well that word actually comes from a proper name of some did this person actually mm -hmm. exist in history or is it a mythological figure what culture does it come from you know and then you start you know seeing connections you know why is zenith and azimuth why do i know those are arabic derived words you know and mm -hmm. on and on it goes and suddenly you know you're unwinding this great skein of of universe where other people are going i don't know you know right like, right right yeah yeah because it's 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 suggesting you know this process of engaging uncertainty right and learning where languages are coming from uh but also learning the silent languages right it's about a process of embodiment where you develop agency by risking sometimes life and limb to be able to mix and and mingle with both the ghost radio signal and its physical manifestations that we encounter sort of sort of every day so there is a lot that we just talked about that i would like to kind of come back to particularly the ideas of languages and silent languages the importance of words versus the importance of being able to uh, engage in this hieroglyphic silence uh, i think coming back to uncertainty um, and agency and you know interacting with and becoming a player in the great kind of dance and mystery of the universe i think this is all extremely important as um you know kind of lighting the, the the fire you know to to achieve escape velocity from whatever arconic uh modernity we currently find ourselves sort of stuck in so these are these are all things that i would like to come back to but if it's all right with you here at the end of the episode i really liked how we end ended last time with a, a practical tip and a dream. And like I said, if it's all right with you, I'd, I'd like to do the same here. If, unless you want to talk a little bit more about this, because that's, that's fine with me too. No, I, I'm happy. I have, uh, I, I like the idea of, of ending with practical tips. It really appeals to me because I think it's important that our investigations and our search party and partying does lead to some practical help uh, for ourselves and, and, and for our listeners, and even if in just in simple ways. And uh, I, I think that one of the things I always say to my students, there's nothing inherently obvious and there's nothing inherently simple. 
and in simple things hide a lot of deep, deep truths. Uh, I would just say that for next time, I think we have a great uh, chance to revisit the the Pentecostal land divers that you got us started thinking about, David, oh, in terms yes. of, of horizontal connection with community and vertical connection between psyche and spirit. I think if we can just kind of put a trail marker there, that that would be yeah. a good good starting point. Um, cool. But in terms of practical tips, okay. I was on a panel once with some very fancy schmancy authors who are very famous and academic nice. people who were, you know, uh, they were perhaps more pretentious than actually famous. But uh, a question was asked of them of, you know, how do they define critical thinking? How do they encourage critical thinking skills? And I was kind of, uh, I was thinking about, uh, I was drinking then. I was thinking about having a margarita very soon after somewhere. And I was mm -hmm. amazed at uh, the waffle that went on and the platitudes and uh, just talking around the subject. And so I intervened and I said, okay, look, Let's let's teach by example. Let's embody the idea rather than have all this telling. Let's have not just showing, but uh, staging and dramatization. Let's give some real concrete examples. And I so I said to uh, the person who raised the, the question in the audience, I said, OK, short of pouring all of the gumballs out on the table, what is the single best way of knowing how many gumballs there are in a jar. So you can't pour them out. And mm -hmm. there's a moment of silence. And, and of course the panel, the distinguished panel is, is very quiet <laughs> because they, they're probably thinking about, you know, really beautiful 18 year old single malt scotch, you know? Yeah. Uh, and a couple of people, you know, gave some sort of idea. And it wasn't really very interesting. It was kind of more waffle. And I said, this is Carnival 101. The best way to know how many gumballs there are in a jar, short of pouring them all out, is to be the one who put them in the jar and to have counted them the whole time. <laughs> you know? And I said, look, right. I, I want to give you another example. Because, I mean, my point was critical thinking starts with being awake, you know, Everyone's so woke these days, they can't be awake to anything. I said, okay, here's another question. Why does New Guinea have so very, very many large insects? And, well, that gets a little bit more discussion. People are going, well, it's the temperature, it's near the equator, it's, you know, it's because of this, because of this. And it went on and on and on. And I let him go because, you know, that's good. It, it started a discussion, which is what the other panelists hadn't been able to do. And I said, OK, all of those are good answers. You know, you can reinforce people on the search. You know, they were, they were it was mm -hmm. good. It was good discussion. Mm -hmm. I said, but there's a simpler answer. Occam's razor. Look at the simple answer first. It's because New Guinea is so very, very rich in insects of all sizes. There are just a shitload of bugs, right. you know, 
And it's kind yeah. of statistical, yeah. you know? Right. And right. so my point is that we're talking about the idea of embodying concepts, embodying invisible, intangible knowledge, which is really what so much of human life is, is driven by. We are steered by the intangible, the invisible, the immaterial. And the hieroglyphic silence uh, passage that David quoted is a b beautiful example. Words are being used for things that aren't there. That's magic. That is the yep. ultimate definition of magic. So think in terms of being awake, being alert in that Solomon Island sense is starting with really being attentive to the simplest things first. Ask deep but simple questions first and build on that. Don't predetermine, jump into a frame, jump, jump into a bigger frame than what the question asks. Find the frame that really suits the question, the category, categoros, the mm -hmm. accuser. Ask the question in its own terms. So that's something to think about. We'll, we'll visit that again, but Critical thinking is like the shamanistic language skills that Dave was talking about earlier. We can't afford not to cultivate those skills. We can. We can get better. We may not be as shrewd as some other people. Uh, we may, may not become as hyper alert as, say, an archetypal figure like Sherlock Holmes. But we can damn well do a lot better than we are. You know, And we can do better every day. Just a little bit more alertness. You know, a little bit more sensitivity mm -hmm. to language. Oh, you're going out of your head? You know, look at that phrase. What a strange idea is that? Oh, we're under house arrest in our skull. You know, I think of, you know, my head is kind of like homeroom in junior high. You know, I'm there sometimes, but then sometimes I wander out of it, you know. And of course, John Lilly said, you know, in case of emergency, you will be returned to your body. You know, don't be so afraid about wandering you know it's it's good yeah a little bit meander yeah. is good okay are we ready now i do have a dream this is actually something that i think is um i i don't know if it's it's based on a memory really or not but it was it was presented to me in my little private theater as both uh a kind of repetition of a magical ceremonial inarticulate ineffable moment in my childhood but also something entirely sort of new and it ties in with what we've been talking about in this last episode but also what we were talking about in part one uh, in terms of childhood and initiation rites and the discovery or confusion about the world of sex so in the dream, this is, uh, I'm, I'm with my parents. I don't know where my sister is, but I'm, I'm pretty young. I'm pretty young, four or five. And we're uh, vacationing with this other couple, Bill and Trish. Bill is one of my father's weird psychology colleagues who, he gives my sister and me the creeps. I never, mm -hmm. never liked him. He was the first... Uh, guy who I ever saw with liver spots and they were too, he was too mm. young for liver spots he had a really smoky voice he'd inherited some family money uh, and was kind of doing psychology just to be sort of weird and cool 
And Trish's wife was really pretty in this kind of Latina gypsy way. And she was a dance teacher. She always wore these really amazing silk scarves and was very petite and perfect in her movements. Well, they're all sitting at this funky, you know, table in the kitchen of a beach house in uh, Aptos, Santa Cruz, California, way back before it was really rich and posh. This is a funky uh, beach cabin, you know, built in like the late 1940s or something. And I walk in and they're playing bridge at this table. And I know they're drinking alcohol, but they're drinking from these plastic kids cups that the people who own the house have, you know, you don't want anything broken. So everything's plastic, right? And it's weird. I get this very weird vibe. And I look at them and I seem to have this sense of some incredible force field of energy and collusion, conspiracy, you know, between them. And these dust motes are streaming through kind of like what i imagined time itself it was you know when i was a kid you know you mm -hmm, see it mm -hmm. streaming through because it's, it's sunset and everything is golden except these there's a weird quiet between these four adults playing this game that maybe you know they don't even really care about and i think that I imagine that seek you know that the secret they share is is sex, and I'm not sure what that means, but it it you know I think it means all that we think and dream we mean by sex across our lives the desire the anxiety the crudeness the kindness the lust the the social conformity and some you know, always mysterious yearning that eludes us, uh, eludes us maybe our whole lives, only we never, we never tell, we never admit that, you know, and I'm freaked out because there's nothing really happening. There are just these four adults that I know well playing a game I don't understand and don't care about, the sun setting, California coast, nothing miraculous or dramatic, but... I have this incredible sense that I can be back in that moment, in that beach house, in the blink of more wander, you know, than will, you know, just mm -hmm. I can be right back there because I realize there is some sort of secret between them all. It's some kind of atmospheric, essentially melancholy wisdom of lost freedom. And then in this beautiful sort of late afternoon, rich dust light, I think I see this dim blur behind them. You know, like the late afternoon, early evening marine layer that's rising over the sand. And I think to myself, it's the faint outline of another level of secret beyond their understanding. Mm. Mm. And that simple image is just, it, it just, I, I think of it and my mouth drops open. There's just, it's a wordless language of world beyond what the adults know. And I had this little dim glimpse of it. And I certainly wanted some magical navigational aid to deal with that. <laughs>